just when you thought it was over. We'll come back with a whole new season of Invalid Culture. That's right, welcome back. It is time for us to watch some terrible movies. But this season, we got a whole new game planned. We are not just going to be watching the movies on our own. We are also going to be subjecting some of our friends, some of our enemies, to the terrible, terrible films. So welcome back to another season of Invalid Culture with a very spooky episode to get us started. And, oh hey, new season, new theme song. Shout out to Mall Crimes. Thank you so much for letting us use this banner. Take it away, Mall Crimes! Welcome to Invalid Culture, a podcast dedicated to excavating the strangest, most baffling, and worst representations of disability in pop culture. Unlike other podcasts that review films you've probably heard of, Invalid Culture is all about looking into the abyss of pop culture-adjacent representations that just never really quite broke through because, well, they're just kind of awful. I'm your host, Jeff Preston. I'm your other host, Erica Katzman, and today we are delighted to welcome a guest host, Clara Madrinas. Hi, um, I'm Clara, also known as wife of Jeff. Um, I, uh, I am a social worker in the mental health field, and I really liked Monkey Shines. Ooh, coming in strong. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I know. I mean. I mean. The the idea of this project was to torture uh, those that are in our lives, and so it only felt fitting uh, that we should have uh, my partner on here. Uh, and as Clara alluded to, uh, we watched this fun little movie called Monkey Shines. Uh, for those of you who have not seen the movie, uh, Erica, can you maybe give us a rundown of what is happening in this film? I would love to. So our protagonist, Alan Mann, is this totally regular fitness-obsessed man of action. He's out for a leisurely jog, as he does, with a bag of bricks on his back. And suddenly he's hit by a car and loses everything. Both his physical ability and his girlfriend, who leaves him for his doctor. Distraught, now a prisoner, and I am indeed quoting promotional materials for this film when I describe him as a prisoner of his wheelchair, Alan contemplates ending his life. But luckily, a family friend and pre-ethics committee researcher, Jeffrey Fisher, has been injecting test monkeys with shredded human brains. But internal faculty competition and... Failing experiments means Jeff must find a new home for prize mutant monkey. And what better place than home care? Now a trained helper monkey, Ella moves in with Alan to care for his needs. But they begin to form a telepathic connection. Ella starts to carry out violent attacks on people who have wronged Alan. And, becoming jealous of the human women in his life, begins attacking everyone. In the end, Alan must kill Ella before she can kill again, which he does by biting her on the scruff of the neck, whipping his head back and forth for 
approximately 30 minutes. So that about sums it up. Um, what did you guys think of this film? I thought it was delightful. I thought the monkey was adorable. I thought the uh, the that scene where he bites the monkey and shakes it to death and it just like splats like roadkill in his little house. Um, that was just wonderful. Um, the what else like the the weird scenes where he's like biting blood out of his own lip and the monkey like makes out with him that was just so weird and so entertaining it's brave brave that they went straight to bestiality like an hour into this film did they though or was it some kind of like vampire thing in you know heralding to romero's i don't know like yeah precious bodily fluids i think for sure yeah, they needed to share the bodily fluids in order to have the telepathic connection, obviously. Well, that's how telepathy works. Whenever I need to feel more connected to someone, I just sip their blood. Jeff, can you confirm? Duly noted. <laughs> I've wondered why I was always feeling so faint. Suddenly it makes so much sense. Yeah, what did you think, Erica? I did not hate this film. I am, you know... Given your mission to torture people with terrible film, I have to say, I think that you went a little bit easy on your wife um, because this was not a torturesome experience for me. <laughs> um, you know, I've uh, I've poked around, I've poked around the the interwebs enough to know that some people were not terribly fond of this film, but you know, maybe it's having the reference package that we have. Um, like taking the films that we've previously reviewed as a reference point, this was not bad. I was pleasantly, um, you know, I think we'll, we'll take a look at some, some problematic tropes, but I think, uh, all in all, I think this is going to measure up pretty decently against some of our others. Yeah. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I, I think it's funny that a lot of people refer to this as sort of like a B list kind of horror film as being kind of schlocky and weird uh, and anyone who's been following the podcast will know that this is probably like the biggest production film we have done on the podcast. There's probably more time and money and skill put into this. Uh, it's not a bad film, but I will say, I feel like it's almost like there's two very different films in this. There's like the film that starts for like the first like 18 minutes or so that is just like, beating you over the head with disability tropes and then there's like this whole other thing that is actually kind of borderline resistant to like general ideas and thoughts about disability and then it kind of swings back to the last to like at the very end of the movie to being kind of more like it's almost like there's two movies that kind of jammed together where you've got these like two really sort of bleh things at the beginning and end and then this kind of like weird interesting grove right in the middle that i think perhaps people missed because they were so frazzled by the first 10 or 15 minutes. They're like, oh, here we go again, yet another movie like this. Mm -hmm. And then it turned into be something else. Yeah, because when when he, um, it's almost got that rear window disability used as just a convenient way to get him to not be able to move in certain ways. Um, and then because they sort of started from that point, they folded in a bunch of things that weren't actually 
super disability related, but in doing so, they created a character that had some, dare I say, depth. He was lonely. He wanted to connect with that monkey. Just wanted to find someone that would love him. Unlike I his, wanted to connect with that monkey. Such a cutie. Unlike his treasonous wife, right? Yeah, I don't know. I just, she was, she was rude. Now, of course, we have our opinions about the movie, and we're going to talk more about it. But we always like to begin with the thoughts of other people. Uh, and so we went through our our trolling of user generated comments. Uh, and it pulled out a couple that uh, were kind of interesting uh, that I think maybe touch on things that uh, I hadn't maybe saw or thought about in the film. Uh, okay, so let, let's hear what actual film people, and by that I mean random people on the internet, uh, had to say about this film. So starting us off, we have a four-star review from Sean Lehman, who says, Jason Begg, stuck in a wheelchair all movie, does a pretty good job of projecting vulnerability and anger, as I would imagine anyone in his situation would feel. Jeffrey Fisher, as Alan's scientist friend, is a well-meaning character who initially can't believe what Alan tells him until it's too late. Even Boo the monkey is a cute little character whose misguided love lands her in a lot of trouble. Dramatic horror movies bring a different sense of tone that doesn't always jive with the normal horror fan. For a film of this type, it relies on solid acting performances, and we get just that. The focus on the performances is interesting. I mean, other than the fact that Stanley Tucci has, like, both no range and yet quite the range, um, I, I didn't really notice anything about the performances themselves, but this guy, he really, he really dialed into the feeling in this movie. Yeah, I would say this is actually one of the more professional sounding, thoughtful sounding reviews that we have ever looked at. This, yeah, borderline professional, I would say. Yeah, there's a sensitivity there to, um, you know. I wonder, though, there seems to be some massive generalizations in this that really crack me up. So, for instance, the fact that the vulnerability and anger that is just what anyone would feel in this situation, he wants people dead. Like, people are killed because of his rage, uh, which I find it interesting that, like, oh, yeah, well, he's stuck in a wheelchair. Of course he would want all these people to die. I think, though, there was a depth there where he didn't really want them to die. He was, like, a little sad when they did. Yeah, he was trying disturbed. to stop it. Yeah, He was trying to stop it. And how this whole like relationship between him and the monkey play out, we will have to unpack a little bit because I don't think I understand. Uh, I was about to say the science of it. I don't know if that's right, but I don't know if I understand the internal science of the film. Um, I also don't want to point out that was Jeffrey Fisher a well-meaning character? Like this is a man who was like banging drugs in his lab, smoking amongst the monkeys, scraping human brain and injecting it into monkeys. Like, yeah, and he had a lot of chemicals in that lab to be lighting up around. Smoking. All that steaming stuff that the monkeys trashed later in the movie. Also, why did the monkeys trash his lab? Revolution, baby. Oh, so cute. All right, we have another four-star review from A. McClymont. 
This is one of those unknown movies that you will be pleasantly, due to its quality, not its theme, surprised by. The director does not resort to gore (coughs) or silly tricks. No sudden pigeons. No cats being thrown into frame. To create a truly disturbing and frightening atmosphere as he gradually shows the protagonist becoming more and more absorbed by his quote-unquote problem. I'm sorry, guys. I had a bit of a hard time getting through this review because uh, I do recall some gore, and I also (laughs) recall some sudden appearance of, um, I don't know, a monkey out of someone's spinal column. (laughs) Right. I just have some off the bat like questions about the integrity of this review. I have nothing but questions about this review. I I fully agree. There were absolutely jump scares in this film. I mean, he broke a monkey's neck with his mouth and threw its corpse on the ground. I mean, it might not be like literal entrails being ripped out of someone's body, but I it was I would say it was relatively gory. Not that I have a problem with that. I also love this like quote unquote problem in quotes. And the problem being that a monkey is murdering everyone around him. Yeah, like what is what is the problem? Because a very striking scene was when he does try to die by by putting that bag over his head. And it's like a horrific moment that just they skate right through it, but it's it's terrifying. Um, and is that his problem that he himself would like to die? Extremely unclear. <laughs> yes, yeah, more and more absorbed by this this problem that is encountering him. Yeah, and that it's in um, quotes, right? It's like, it's like it's kind of a problem, but not really. Is that what the quotes are all about? I mean, if you look at the like the broad story, like the dude loses everything. Does he though? Because he gains he gains the monkey trainer lady in a sort of gradual way that makes no sense. Um, He like he has a pretty sweet life. Like he's got a lot of technological setups to make his life seem relatively simple and easy. Like he. He loses stuff, but he, like, the movie really clips along in terms of how quickly he seems to have a very accessible house. And if it wasn't for the monkey killing everyone, he seems to have, like, a pretty sweet deal going. I fully agree. Yeah. And even then, like, if he could hide that the monkey was killing everyone, right? (laughs) Like, if he just sort of subtly let the monkey do its thing... Yeah, I think we might chalk this up to McClymond being on the same wavelength as uh, Sean Lehman in terms of just making assumptions about what people's lives are most likely like uh, when they incur a disability. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have a five-star review from an anonymous user who went to the trouble of titling their review, Never Mess With God's Creation followed by a review that reads loved this movie after seeing Jason Begg portraying a quadriplegic and then seeing him portray Hank Voigt on Chicago PD. He's two completely people. (laughs) I just want to clarify that I am reading the review when I say he's two completely people. Two 
full people. So poetic. Loved Ella. She tried so hard to number two. Please, Alan. But I felt sorry for her in the end of the movie when Alan killed her. He more than killed her. (laughs) He he broke that monkey. Um, Spoken like a true Chicago PD fan. Mm. Completely. Absolutely. What I want to understand is what relation does the title have to basically anything else that he says in the review? I don't disagree that it applies to the movie, perhaps, but it's like he set it up as this one thing and then he subverted our expectations with a very different review. And then never mess with God's creation. Like the movie seemed to take a pretty, pretty pro Darwin approach in my opinion so i don't know that god's creation is is a huge factor here i think this is like a cautionary tale like when you when you go messing like injecting human brains into a monkey things might go poorly but they also might go very neutrally because like think of the (laughs) the the architecture the mechanics of that right you inject the frozen sliced up human brain into the monkey's veins blood (laughs) General yeah, corpse. so he's got he's got brain in the bloodstream. Like, I don't know. I'm skeptical of the whole thing. Yeah, we, we're we're going to talk some more about the science uh, in our in our next segment. Yeah, I, I have so many questions about the science. Uh, I also I love my I think my my last favorite point about this review is the idea that they are shocked by the fact that this actor can play two different characters. Uh, like, has this person never seen actors before? Well, we don't know that they're different characters. They're completely people, but they could be the same. They're, well, they have different names, so he could have changed his name, I suppose. Because he's Alan Mann in Monkey... I was supposed to say Monkey Paws. Monkey Shines. Uh, and then he's Hank Voigt when he reappears uh, in, in Chicago PD. But um, Are you confirming or denying that Chicago PD is a sequel? To monkey shines. I'm going to reserve judgment <laughs> until after our conversation. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about what other people thought about the film. Uh, we've talked a little bit about what the film is about in general, but it, I think it is time for us to get analytical. Uh, so while this movie, I think, does a good job of some things, there are some of those old fun tropes that we get to endure in this film. Uh, particularly mentioned kind of earlier, the first 20 minutes of the film or so really leans hard into telling us that Alan Mann is a man of physical form and function. Uh, what did you guys think about this opening scene in which he covers his body in weights to go for a casual stroll? And nude stretches earlier in the film. That was extremely unusual. So <laughs> as a um, an experienced distance runner, and I'm, I'm decently experienced, I have I have run many like thousands of kilometers in, in training for actual long distance races. Not once have I um, strapped weights to my wrists and ankles and filled a backpack with were they bricks were they cinder blocks they were bricks yeah bricks and i mean i'm no man man 
So maybe that's, that's why. why. But yes, just to, to back to Claire's point, I have also never, nor could I imagine myself um, stretching completely naked. Like <laughs> just the thought of like sitting on a carpet with exposed genitals. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feeling that, but like to be actually like stretching in a way that is mashing my nude body into said <laughs> carpet. Uh, no shade to people who stretch nude, who enjoy nudity in general, but it just, there was something uh, unusual about that. Especially when there was no other nudity other than the sex scene, right? Mm-hmm. So, and we don't really see his body during the sex scene. So we see this like horrific exposure of him like doing his weird nude stretches and then and then you know he's disabled and then his body becomes something else something that we don't see doing nude stretches. It almost read like a warning for like you know if parents had inadvertently brought their child to this film thinking that it was like a cute monkey movie for kids it was like P.S. It's going to get a lot worse than a fully naked man. So now is the time to shield virgin eyes. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what, what Susan Jeffers talked about. About in the 80s, you have all these movies like Rocky and um, Top Gun, uh, Topical. Uh, you have all these movies of like hard man bodies like Stallone and Schwarzenegger that are trying to like recapture this like hard man status that was thought to have been lost in like the 1970s. And so I think this like him stretching with like tight oiled muscles, like firm buttocks, clenching, thirsting for the road to run uh, is like, they're trying to set up this like duality where it's like, this man has everything until he doesn't when he's run over by a truck. Yeah, and that there is something very militaristic about stuffing your backpack with bricks. Like, it reminds you of, you know, the the big packs and the sort of, like, huffing through the forests of jungles of Vietnam. And um, and then it's interesting that the, the scientists are kind of these, they are not hard bodies, right? They are. Exactly. They're nerds. They're eggheads. Yeah, yeah, the one is like a heavy smoker who does drugs. The other is this like sweaty kind of ham looking man, <laughs> more or less. Yeah, and also note that they don't show him getting hit by the car exactly, but they do show the brick shattering, right? Like the brick, it, he was a like, I honestly wonder if this is Romero being like, he was built like a brick shithouse. Like, that is sort of the, like, joke that's being kind of made here. And then the brick breaks. Um, and so even the hardest of bodies can suffer. And then we pretty quickly find ourselves in the OR. Almost immediately. And we have, like, that nice, like, cut the body open scene. Uh, and and I want to note, so while we were screening, while we were watching this film uh, together... Uh, moments into the film, like after the accident happens, Erica, well, t- tell us what you asked, Erica. <laughs> I believe I said, uh, I'd like to know what, how far, how many minutes into the film we get before we find out that he is n- no longer sexually viable. Basically that his penis doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And the answer is 
15 minutes and 5 seconds. About 10 minutes after Erica asked this question. Yeah, I mean, I think Romero has a real gift for foreshadowing. We've established that much. (laughs) Yes. Yep, it it was pretty, pretty clear. I will say, though, this was like a mic drop moment, though, when he does reveal the impotence. And I love it because he drops this line and then the scene just ends. Uh, And if you don't believe me how abrupt it is, take a listen to this. I'm sorry I didn't make the party. Linda called me. She sounded pretty crazed. Linda's dumping me. She didn't come out and say it, but uh, now I can tell. I'm like, Alan, I mean, Linda's just not comfortable with the change yet. That's all. She's going to come around. She walks out on you now, fucker. I can't. <sighs> so science, uh, science made its best effort. It failed. He is painfully aware. This scene felt like something that would be in like South Park, like just this like weird beat, the ba- the back and forth of the like, well, like he's trying to be all supportive. And being like, well, whatever, who cares about her? There'll be more. Uh, but it has to come back to the dick, right? It has to come back to, he's like, that's the problem. She's leaving me because I can't. Which I want to just put fully in view. She clearly left you because A, Stanley Tucci, obviously. And two, uh, he's like a rich doctor. She like left for the money, I think, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I think what we've kind of covered to this point, this, uh, this setup of this physically superior man and then understanding like the devastating loss of his physical superiority um, is really just kind of, it's, it's setting us up to understand that Alan is an object of care. Um, And that is, you know, I think the clarifying, he is no longer sexual. He is an object of care. He will still be surrounded by women, but they will be there to, I mean, I'm hesitant to say take care of him because I don't think that taking care is really what they're doing so much as competing with each other to be the caretaker. Um, And this is, this is really interesting. This was interesting for me to think about in the context of this pod, because I don't think this is really something that we have seen portrayed before. No, there's this immediate shift to like, from like women in this film predominantly shift from like romantic object immediately to maternal object uh like the sort of mother literally a mother and then this sort of like cold nurse and then you also then have this like well okay we could talk more about this later but this woman who wears many hats uh including monkey trainer wheelchair repair person adaptive device like she was like an ot who then sleeps with him um so she's sort of the mother and and shapes him yeah yeah, personal groomer so we have this like person who sort of starts out as the maternal carer that then becomes the love object uh again and that sort of like reconstitutes him right and he regains his autonomy after he sleeps with her i know this is not our sorry can we talk about moment but like we do need to talk a little bit about Mel. So Monkey Trainer Mel, 
is how I will henceforth be referring to her. Uh, monkey trainer Mel slips into Alan's orbit as a monkey trainer. And then as, as you have alluded to suddenly be, just becomes a caregiver. Like it's, it's as though any woman who slips into Alan's orbit then becomes a caregiver because suddenly we see her shaving his face, which is like a quite intimate and B like a, you know, relatively, um, like there's, there's sort of an implication of like trust and care and sensitivity. Um, and then it just kind of spirals from there that we're like, wait a sec, wait a sec. We, we have seen, so I think, um, around, uh, perhaps the first time that Mel and Alan bring when like moments after learning about this su support monkey, it is somehow ready to support Alan specifically, um, so Mel shows up with the monkey and honestly credit to, um, act this actor, Kate McNeil for her face acting, because in that scene, she is so visibly torn in two by her romantic attraction to Alan, but also this like apparent inappropriateness of her feelings for him. It, like, I, I don't know if it's because he's a client or because he's disabled or because his penis is broken, but whatever it is, like, it's clear that, um, it's clear that she, she's just, she's so conflicted. Um, and as you have also, I think this is, yeah, we're, we're deep into spoiler territory here, but it, it's clear that when he, he regains this ability to, well, this is a fresh spoiler, but walk, uh, later in the film, um, when he shows her that he's perfectly capable of satisfying her sexually, even, without a functioning phallus um her confusion is just alleviated and suddenly her that that second that that hold back in her face is gone and she's just there she's ready now she can be romantically into him um it's uh that's quite an arc mm -hmm. yeah. it's another piece of just unintentional goodness that this movie seemed to have because another thing you touched on there was the fluidity of their social networks was clearly just like a matter of narrative convenience. So the fact that the, the ex-girlfriend gets with the doctor and the scientist is a family friend and the caregiver is also the monkey trainer, like it, it was all very confusing and clearly just there because, you know, that's the easiest way to limit the number of actors we need in this movie. But then it, it hinted at this sense of community or collectivism that they had in their little bubble um, that was kind of sweet, like kind of cute that they all sort of help each other out in these weird ways, despite the fact that all the women were so maternal and caring and all the men were purely selfish. So in that way, there was that bit of like a friends vibe where like everybody knows each other, but there was also this like really tense competition between the four females, the mom, the nurse, Mel and the monkey. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Which I think is this, this other trope that the movie, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it seems to be it, like it gets, it gets caught in to this whole idea of like when caretakers become lovers uh, and you know, that whole like falling in love with your nurse kind of thing uh, is happening um, and, and I will note, I think it's important to note that this woman who's never met him, but has trained the monkey starts to shave him. And yet the male family friend who would know how to shave 
given that he is a man and shaves his own face, clearly. Uh, or maybe not. Maybe his mother shaves his face. I don't know how it works in this world. Uh, he never delivers any care. Like, Jeff doesn't provide any sort of care, nor really any sort of service, other than giving him a monkey. And he gives, as Claire said, he gives the monkey for selfish reasons because he's trying to hide the monkey. Um, he would not have given that monkey otherwise. So there's the there's the caretaker turned lover, but there's also some interesting unpacking around the parent, the mom, right? Because the the doctor actually instructs the mom to leave um, because she is apparently causing Alan's depression. Um, and the mom has some, like, I guess I'd say like stereotypical, but in an accurate way, if that makes sense. Um, she has that kind of role where we see Alan goes and spends, uh, Alan. So the, the mom declares, first of all, doesn't ask if she's needed or wanted, but just declares like, oh, well, I've sold my business and my house. I'm moving in with you because no one else can take care of you. Um, never mind the fact that they are clearly extremely wealthy and could probably afford hired care if needed. Um, but no, mom is going to sacrifice her life to be there to care for her son. And when we see um, Alan go and spend the night at, or the weekend at Mel's, mom is just losing her mind, um, upset that how, where were you? How could you not tell me? Like, how old is he? He's in his, what, 40s, late 30s, early 40s? Hard to say. I mean, back in the 80s, he might have been 13. Right. People yeah. aged okay. very rapidly. Fair point. Fair point. He was, he was in law school. Okay. So he was probably somewhere like mid 20. Right. And he was training for the Olympics. That's why he was jogging. Right. Um, okay. And so he would have been probably like early to mid 20s. I think uh, the age, even, you know, even at, uh, even at uh, mid 20s, um, it would be very normal <laughs> for, you know, uh, an, a, an adult in their early 20s living alone, um, not to inform or check in with their parent or caregiver for that matter about um, what they were doing with their weekend overnights, etc. So that I thought that this was actually like a kind of an an accurate, there there were quite a lot of accurate representations. And this was this was one of them, um, that uh, that kind of uh, portrayal of of overreach. Yeah, and I wonder if that accuracy is driven by you know, it was George Romero being like, I want to make a commentary about, you know, like familial relations after an accident and who, how people can feel like they maybe are intended to be or must be taken care of or, or whatever. Or, you know, was this all about designing more antagonism so that the audience is like, oh no, Ella's going to kill the mom next. Um, like, like, I'm wondering, and it's like the narrative purpose perhaps doesn't actually matter. Because I think in a later, now watching this movie, you know, this was made in the 80s, now watching this in in 2022, uh, there's some interesting stuff to be drawn from this that was perhaps not intended, but I think is actually kind of accurate to some people's experiences uh, after, after encountering an injury like this. I also find it hilarious, the trope of the the caregiver mother girlfriend sort of situation um because it's so common that the the sort of intimacy of shaving becomes 
you know, sexual intimacy and that the, there's this sort of relationship. As soon as someone is disabled, there's this relationship between caregiving and sexuality. And I found that fascinating because a part of the reason that I think, Jeff, you and my relationship works is because we're very distinct. Like, I, I do not play much of a caregiving role at all in your life. Like, that is just not. And, and I think that's a good thing because it keeps us able to maintain a relationship that is built on a lot of other things um, without that sort of expectation that that I play some kind of maternal role or that you play some sort of needing role. something the tropes leave out too is like sure there is caregiving but the caregiving is directed by you right so it's actually as much as there's this oh you know this disabled person is so helpless and needs to be cared for whatever um you are actually the one in control in your caregiving relationships right um and and it would be really shocking to me if anything about that ever became intimate or sexual because it it just doesn't have that kind of dynamic in the real world for the most part like it, it you're it's so practical and clinical in a way but also so um kind of shared like like that you have the power and control and sort of directing your care and they have that sort of physical capacity to provide things that you might not be able to you know reach or, but it's it's very it it's so much more egalitarian than these sexual relationships seem to like there's there's weird power and control stuff going on in these sex scenes that is not going on in my observed interactions and experienced interactions with caregiving right yeah so i'm sorry but can we talk about that sex scene I would love to talk about the sex scene. Um, I want to note before we even talk about the actual scene, I just want to note that this sex scene was originally intended to be much longer and a lot more gratuitous. Uh, but Romero actually cut a lot of it uh, for various reasons. And famously, one of the producers of the film actually had liked it before the cut, where it was a lot more gritty, uh, which included a penetrative oral sex scene. Uh, which was then cut. Uh, I would imagine probably it would have had to have been cut for ratings. This movie would not have been in cinema if they'd shown him, like, putting his tongue inside this woman. I don't think they would have allowed that. Uh, but somewhere out in the world, there is a presumably a longer cut of the sex scene. 
I thought it was it was pretty great. Um, the first thing I noticed was that they were making creative use of the adaptive equipment that was already in the room, um, which I think was a it was both realistic and um, it felt natural. Totally, totally. And it was like it was like a pretty racy scene. Like it, there was. Um, you know, like, I, I felt like it wasn't, like, sanitized or, like, it wasn't made weird. Like, essentially, like, disability ceased to exist in this scene. Yeah. So when I was watching the scene, all I could think about was the sex scene from Coming Home. Uh, obviously, John Voight, uh, which was about a decade before this film. Uh, and famously, there's this sex scene. Um, and in that sex scene, it felt very in my opinion like kind of like it was like oh this is how they do it um like it felt almost like instructional kind of like it was like looking in on how the others have sex and it's like oh it's oral for them oh um and obviously the scene is really actually more about the the woman in coming home uh, it's about her sort of like liberation and arguably possibly this is a lesbian sex scene that's like a whole other body of academic work um but I felt like this was the opposite. Like like you said, this felt more like kind of like a natural, like this is sort of how people hook up um, in some ways. Like there was like a bit of a clumsiness to it, but there was still like kind of a naturalness to it. Um, there was a fairly long breastfeeding moment that I was like, uh, this feels a little bit maternal. Yeah, I didn't I didn't read that as maternal in the moment, but now that you mention it, like it went it went on and was really Yeah, and it was like, like he was like suckling. Yeah, I, I, in the moment I think my mind was like at what point does movie sex become porn? Uh so yes, I was engrossed in that and I think missed the suckling um metaphor or is that a metaphor symbolism yeah action now that you pointed out literal action <laughs> can't unsee that yeah but then it but then it moves on right and it becomes this other thing that they both are like willing and like enthusiastically uh involved in um like both of them come at this on like kind of like level ground which i think is actually kind of interesting I think it's also like when you mentioned the relationship, I think ultimately the sex scene is less about their relationship than it is about his rehabilitation or I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it's rehabilitation, but I mean, she is sort of in this um, like therapy monkey trainer happens to have a house full of adaptive equipment. Like you said, she does ring a bit like an occupational therapist. Um, not that, OTs have homes full of adaptive equipment. I was about to ask, so do you have a barn <laughs> of adaptive equipment that you use to train so that you know exactly what it's like? In, in I mean, I, th- I could see in a very sp- highly specialized practice, which they she must have had given the like cutting edge technology of the day that she had kicking around in her home um, that she was using to, to train the monkeys what to expect. But really like the... You know, and I, I, I bring this up as like a kind of a double-edged, um, a, a bit of a double-edged situation because on one hand we see it sink back into this like, you know, very stereotypical like, oh, he's regaining his sexuality. This is like the, this is the turning point where, you know, 
you can almost predict at that point that he's he's going to walk again. He can have sex. He's totally going to walk again. But on the on the other hand, like to give, you know, just to give it like a, a bit of a more compassionate read, like the intimacy of like it, it also is sort of this moment in the movie where we see him more than this he he gains a he gains a whole dimension uh, as a character right like he's he's often just very like glum and all we really see him do is move his head side to side in order to move his joystick we don't see a whole lot of like emoting other than some like monkey infused rage but um you know he like he sort of comes out of a shell in a way that um i think could actually be read as like a positive representation of um, the the reality of like learning to live in a like in a disabled body, especially with like an acquired disability, um, and like the the sort of pos- like the positive experience of of getting physically close with someone um, and being able to explore um, your body and like abilities in a in a different way. And I think it's it's it really connects with the fact that his other girlfriend, as he understands it, left him because he could not please her. Um, and then he has this sort of inversion where now he's met a woman that he does please. Um, and I think that there's like this like good woman, bad woman thing going on. Like the the ex-girlfriend, we know nothing about this person. Like I, that's my one, I think one of my big critiques is I would have liked to have known what their relationship was like first uh, before the accident, so to speak, like, so that we have a bit of a comparison. Like maybe this is actually about him learning how to have a healthy relationship because all the other women, his mom, the caregiver, and presumably the ex were all not healthy relationships for different reasons, but they were all like kind of bad relationships and often bad because the women were bossy, quote unquote. Yeah, I think a, a different podcast could delve deeper into some of the gender representation here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lots, lots to be said. Lots to be said about it. They also did, though, a decent job of weaving in this unexpected complexity in ways that seemed unintentionally, but, unintentional, but could have been fully intentional. Like the fact that, you know, they refer to his his injury or or whatever it is has made him disabled they refer to it at one point as congenital when they find out that he has two breaks in his spine right so it's like they have this big brick shattering accident scene but it's also just something that would have happened anyway or you know when he discovers himself and it's like his physical rehabilitation is very much tied to the girlfriend but a psychological rehabilitation that the getting better from that horrific bag on the head scene um, was very much the monkey who was the evil character that helped with his sort of psychological rehabilitation. And so there were these, these sort of interwoven complexities that they just kind of dropped in very, very quietly um, and didn't, didn't focus in on, but that to me felt actually very worth thinking about. Yeah. It made it better. It made it better because they didn't just say it. And you maybe have just actually latched on to the principal crime that most of the films make that we cover on this podcast is that they try to explain everything. Like they say outright exactly what they're trying to tell you. And it just is so cringy. Yeah, I mean, this one definitely did that. Like uh, when they he had his injury and then the surgeon was announcing like, 
we have a C5. Like it was like, just so everybody knows what we're dealing with here. This man is paralyzed. He will not be moving limbs below his neck. That so it was it was guilty about guilty of that I I to some degree but um, but yeah that's a that was a really interesting um, sort of pro- it almost taps into like a proximity to nature trope like that there is like something um, something more or like less human uh, he's like working his way back to what was it? Completely personhood or something? Um, <laughs> to be a complete person. <laughs> but he he sort of had to like climb through the monkey to get to the to the woman. Okay, so I think you brought us to our last thing that I that I really want to talk about here, which is the science of this film, because the science in this film is wild. Because Romero both put some effort, but also put no effort into trying to build like an internal science logic to this film. So I, where do you guys want to start on the science of this film? I guess we could start with the human brain that was very obviously a chicken breast. Yep. Classic uh, film trick. Being shaved and into a serum and then haphazardly injected into the body of the monkey. I just Which love made the monkey how, smart. How exceptionally childish that is, right? Where it's like, okay, we've got to find a way to get the human into the monkey. Let's just do it literally. Let's just do it this way. And like it's so <laughs> it's like when it, it it's so childish and yet so perfect. I love that. It's like both lazy, but also kind of creative. Like they weren't just like, oh, it's a demon. Or like, oh, I zapped it with radiation, which I think would be the remake. Like if they were to remake this movie now in 2020, the radio, it would be radioactive waves or 5G cell phone towers. Uh, so like it would be this other technology. But this is like, it's all about like injection and contamination. Uh, and so it's like both like kind of clever, but also like, that's not how this works. Like that you definitely don't get smarter by injecting brains into people. So we have this like bafflingly um, juvenile concept of science juxtaposed with like a dead on critique of academia. <laughs> Because the doctor is going to these extreme measures because he's under pressure to produce more research. Yeah. Yeah. Literally taking a drug which forces him to stay awake for eight hours, which I think is just meth. (laughs) I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the scraping of the chicken breast brain, he was tweaking. Like, that's clear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, the injection of that meth also seemed a little haphazard, like straight to the arm and go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no measurement. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and then you have this like debate about ethics. And what's amazing about it is that the scientist friend, Jeff, repeatedly claims the high ground as the moral researcher at this institute, because he's not torturing or murdering these monkeys like his colleague is, 
who is like a body man. Like he's like, why aren't you sending me your dead monkeys? I want to do autopsies on them. Uh, and I'm like, okay. But you're also injecting human brain into a monkey. Like, I don't know that you can claim the like ethical research high ground in this instance. Yeah. And I think the the last piece around that kind of just the, the presence of science in this film was that we have this sort of mad scientist situation happening, but also really sharply juxtaposed with this, what I'm, I'm assuming is cutting edge technology for the mid to late eighties in terms of the, the wheelchair, the um, sip and puff system, the uh, mechanical lifts, like there's a lot of um, the voice activated entire house. Yeah. Yeah. This guy was rocking Alexa like 30 years before Alexa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there was also like um, just a, a kind of shockingly present um, embrace of science of good science also. Um, so I don't know if that's like some, uh, maybe entirely unintentional or maybe there is um, some kind of, um, just commentary on like the, you know, the goods and the evils of, of science. Yeah. I think that plays into Romero. Like this is, this was Romero's first like studio film. Um, but if you, if you're a Romero fan, you'll know that he often uses the films to critique sort of societal problems, whether it be because of racism, consumerism, etc. cetera. Uh, these are factors in a lot of his films. Um, and there's definitely this duality, I would say, like that, like it, when used right, and and particularly, like I would say, like sort of analog or like non-intelligent science. So like technologies, like um, the thing that's holding the book, or the the complicated phone system that uses like punch card uh, in order to auto dial. Um, these were all seen as like good, helpful, adaptive technologies. But then technologies like science used by doctors now is sort of a problem because you have these like two doctors, one who's like botched the surgery and quote ruined his life and stole his girlfriend, um, juxtaposed to this other family doctor who is like a man of science, a good doctor who looks deeper than surface. Like he, he has like rigor in a way that the other doctor perhaps didn't. Um, so it seems like there's this like pivot on like the more sentience is involved, the more dangerous the technology is or the worse the outcome. And it's noteworthy that he tries a couple things like at the climax of the film, when he wants the monkey dead, he tries a couple of things that involve the assistive technology in the house. So he tries to get a door open. He tries to make a call. But what is it that actually kills the monkey? It is his teeth, right? Like it's it's the most like human thing about him, right? Which is his his body that is able to crush the monkey um, and fling it aside. Well, guys, we got good and deep into that one. Now I think it's time to draw back a step and get trivial. Jeff, what do you have for us this week? There, Okay, so there's a lot to talk about on this one because there's a lot of stuff in this film. It's also a much bigger 
film than most of the things we do. So there's a lot and we're going to miss a ton of it. I promise you. Uh, so most obviously you might remember me from such films as George Romero, obviously well known in the horror community, Night of the Living Dead fame. Uh, he's probably, I would say he's maybe the most known. Stanley Tucci might be the most known, most famous in this. Um, this was his first studio film. And there are a lot of references online about how he really did not like the interference of the production company, the distributor Orion, that sanitized a lot of the original cut, including changing the ending. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Stanley Tucci, obviously, the legend. Um, Joyce Van Patten, who plays the mother, has actually also had a pretty productive career. Uh, she's been in a couple movies like Marley and Me and Grown Ups, has done a ton of TV cameos. And that's actually what most of the other characters in this film have done. They've had long careers of bit parts in TV shows, but many of them are actually still acting, including Jason Begg, our main character. But more interesting about him is that Jason, who plays Alan in the film, had an actual horrendous car accident in the 1990s, in 1999. And uh, he was in a coma, he was in a hospital, tons of broken bones. He did break his spine, but uh, it got better, I guess. Um, but most importantly, uh, he was intubated. And he kept on waking up in the hospital and pulling out the tube, which damaged his lungs. And so he attributes his now gravelly voice which is sort of what got him the job, apparently, on Chicago PD. He blames that actually on this him pulling out the intubation tube repeatedly after his accident. Uh, so he actually is basically living, uh, minus the monkey, he is living the life of Alan, uh, which I think is a, is a wild, wild turn of events. All right, let's get into the equipment facts because I spent the better part of this film trying to figure out whether this equipment that is seen in the film is legit. And to uh, the credit of Romero or whoever on the team was responsible for um, doing their research, I think they did their research. Um, the industrial looking chain based Hoyer lift that we see throughout the film I did not think that that could be, I still can't wrap my mind around the mechanics of this, but uh, Jeff, you did some research and what did you find out? Yeah, it looks like the frame and the chains that are used to hook them to it does appear to be very similar to an Invocare patient lift. Uh, that lift looks more like a traditional Hoyer with the like bar that you use to raise it up and down. Um, this may be actually an Invocare track lift from back in the 80s, possibly, or it may be something that they cobbled together for cheap, uh, where they just got parts from a broken one and, and put it together. Uh, but yeah, apparently, like BDSM chain sex devices, big inpatient care back in, uh, back in the 1980s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there were definitely some inconsistencies. Like there's, I just can't, I cannot... Uh, figure out how it's possible that anyone but a walking actor could have hoisted themselves up into the, the a sling at such a height to be hovering at standing height over a steaming hot bathtub. But um, but yeah. yeah, I don't understand why they were cooking him like a lobster mm -hmm. every time they like. Why is he not lowered into the water? Why is he suspended above a full bathtub 
that is like piping hot. The other, the other piece of uh, technology that, that I was really gripped by in this film was obviously um, the, the wheelchair. So Alan has a wheelchair that he operates using a mouth operated joystick. And um, I, I couldn't tell if I, I'm assuming it, that just, you know, given the complexities of actually using a sip and puff system, learning to use a sip and puff system, I'm, I'm assuming, or even to control a wheelchair with one's mouth, I'm assuming that the actor was not actually using a functioning system there, but um, the wheelchair, it turns out, was actually, um, has a bit of a history. Huge history, yeah. So he is in an Everest Jennings Marathon, uh, which is a belt motor wheelchair, and this was their, um, it was sort of their, like, kind of hardcore chair. It was, like, intended for well, they're all kind of built for hospital use, but this was sort of like the heavy duty one and made for, for bigger people and had a higher weight range. Uh, but Everest and Jennings is actually also has a really weird connection within the world of disability in the United States. Uh, they were one of the largest equipment manufacturers in the US. They were one of the first companies to mass produce wheelchairs. Uh, and that all happened until about the 1970s. Uh, they were hit with an antitrust suit by the Department of Justice. Eventually, there was a class action lawsuit uh, because of malpractice and things that they were doing. That was settled out of court in 1984, which was kind of the beginning of the end of the organization. They had a bad 80s that turned into a worse 90s, and the brand was eventually sold off. Uh, However, their wheelchairs have appeared everywhere, including being used by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And for those of you in the disability studies world, it was Everest and Jennings wheelchairs that were predominantly used by Ed Roberts and the Woolen Quads in Berkeley, California. It was also an Everest and Jennings chair that was the first chair that Christopher Reeve used in 1995 after the accident. Uh, So these were like a big deal. Uh, This is a big deal company that was making kind of chairs that were ended up in the hands of, of a lot of people on camera, uh, to say the very least, uh, which is interesting given that it is a, was originally a California-founded company. Um, but yeah, this is like a real piece of like disability sort of history uh, here that is represented. And finally, a wheelchair that is not a quickie. All right, so moving on to production facts, uh... We chatted earlier about um, the fact that the sex scene was intended to be much longer and significantly racier, uh, but was ultimately scaled back for the release. And we've also alluded to the original ending uh, of the film being changed. Um, Now, it's my understanding that this was not Romero's decision, but actually the distribution company, was it? that um, decided that this film needed to have a happier ending, which is really interesting because ultimately this has a huge impact on the disability narrative. Um, We've also alluded to the fact that our protagonist um, by the end of the film is uh, no longer uh, paralyzed or is sort of gradually working his way out of paralysis. He has a spinal surgery that um, presumably uh, reattaches his um, some spinal nerves and uh, you know um, 
Notably, he became a candidate for that when he uh, willed his hand to move, which was the criteria for um, candidacy for that surgery. I don't know if that is a factual uh, criteria. I strongly doubt it. Uh, But um, yeah, so ultimately it turns out uh, Romero did not actually intend for this to happen. He was not uh, supposed to recover from this accident but this was the um, this was the film uh, company or film distributors attempt to uh, make this a more appealing film to uh, broader audiences. Very interesting. Yeah, it's that real drive that we have to see the disabled person walk again at the end. Like if they're not going to die, they have to walk again. Um, although I am a little upset that we did not get a different drummer's montage at the end of a dead Ella running alongside him uh, that would have just made it so much better at the end uh, and so last bit of uh, production facts we have here um, so there was actually some substantial negative uh, publicity around this film um, it was actually uh, disability activists uh, were there were vocal about the Uh, promotional materials or in response to the promotional materials for the film. So uh, what I initially read in a news article uh, from 1988 was that people were upset about the, I guess in the promotional materials, there was a monkey in a wheelchair. And so that was the official story from the production company that, Oh, we will, we will right away. We will get that out of the, um, out of the publicity campaign. But what they don't really get into and uh, what the likes of uh, Paul Longmore actually and and other known disability activists were speaking out against um, was first of all, just this, the idea of a monkey attendant turning into um, a monster. Um, but secondly, the there's a poem Parts of which appear on the uh, on the film cover, and a, a much longer version of which shows up in this uh, ad campaign. That actually, I mean, it, it it starts out. There was a man whose prison was his chair. Should we just read the poem? Here it is. Once there was a man whose prison was a chair. The man had a monkey. They made the strangest pair. The man was the prisoner, the monkey held the key. No matter how he tried, the man couldn't flee. Locked in his prison, terrified and frail, the monkey wielding power keeping him in jail. The man tried to keep the monkey from his brain, but every move he made became the monkey's game. The monkey ruled the man, it climbed inside his head, and now as fate would have it, one of them was dead. Spoiler poem. Spoiler poem, but honestly misleading. I fully spent this entire film assuming that the monkey was going to eat Alan's face. <laughs> it's odd that they like lead with this idea like, oh no, one of them will die, don't worry. But which one? That's the real drama. But I also feel like this is not representative of really any of the film no am i wrong no you're not wrong i mean the you know the bit about the the monkey but this whole like 
the narrative of the poem that Alan is a prisoner locked locked in the prison of his chair and, and the monkey is controlling his fate like that's not that, that that's just inaccurate like this actually it makes me it's you know I feel like this is much like the altered ending of the film I feel like this poem also is really intended it's like targeted to the American imagination that understands disability as a prison wheelchairs as something that people are confined to Um, it's really appealing to that yeah I wonder if this is a situation where Romero did not make the movie the studio wanted and this is actually this this is the film they really wanted they actually wanted this film to be about this frail prison man like they wanted um I feel like the studio wanted rear window but they wanted that like disabled man trapped and gonna die because he's disabled and that's just like not what Romero brought them and they were like, well, whatever, we'll just advertise it that way. Uh, we don't care if that's what it actually is. Yeah, I'm really curious. Um, you know, I I felt a little bit torn when I, um, you know, when I found out that there were um, re- like renowned disability activists speaking out against the film, uh, you know, which I I felt really was not a terrible disability representation. It from what I understand, the outcry was actually about the promotional materials more than the film itself. Um, so that that makes me, you know, hopeful that um, you know, maybe uh, folks would have felt a little bit more compassionately towards the film than they than they did the promotional materials. Yeah, my my sense is that the audience response to this is, is kind of divisive. There are there are some within the disabled population that think this is a hilarious movie. They love that it's campy. They think it's kind of cool and retro and interesting. And then there are others who don't, who think that it's it's playing on the same tropes. It doesn't do anything new. It's all the same old garbage. Uh, it's also a film that was relatively difficult to get your hands on until fairly recently. Uh, there have been a bunch of new releases, uh, Blu-ray and special editions and that kind of thing, which has made it much easier to access. But there was a period in the early 2000s where it was actually kind of hard to get a copy of it. Um, and so I think that might also contribute a little bit that the thing that most people had access to was the promotion and not necessarily the film itself. Uh, but if you are paying attention, you will notice that parts of this film are both referenced and shown in the documentary Code of the Freaks, uh, which talks about representation of disability in popular culture. Uh, so this movie has had an impact, if nothing else. But I think it's that time for us to talk a little bit about what we thought. Let's rate this film. For those of you who do not know, we have built an empirical, completely scientific, like brains injected to blood scale to determine the quality of our film. Uh, Like golf, our little game, the lower the score, the better. We have four questions that we are going to ask each of our viewers to rate on a scale of one to five and we will determine the quality of the film. So let's start up. Our first question, on a scale of one to five, with five being the least accurate, so five being bad, one being good, how accurate does this film portray disability? So I think there's some of the things we touched on, like the the interactions with the mother who was kind of annoying and the 
um, the sort of surly nurse. And there, there were aspects of his experience that seemed not to be, you know, entirely driven by disability alone. Like he seemed to have some other dimensions there as well. And so I thought that contributed to overall sort of realism and, and, and the fact that he used assistive technology um, comfortably without it being a whole thing in the same way that, you know, I'm thinking of different drummer in the piss tube. Like it was just a little bit more accurate than that. So. I totally agree. Um, I'm, I will be so bold as to give it a two. I also gave it a two. Um, I thought that they actually showed real devices, things that people actually do use in their life. And it wasn't like some, there was a bit of like a, what was me, but yeah. I thought that there was some accuracy. Obviously, marks are taken off because this whole like double spinal problem that was missed by the one, uh, this is obviously like science fiction. And the idea that you would not do a surgery unless someone can move a part of their body first to prove that it is in fact this problem also seems uh, highly suspect. Okay, question number two, scale of one to five, with five being the hardest, how hard was it for you to get through this film? Yeah, one. I thought it was smooth sailing, entertaining. There was even some some cute monkey moments. It's little facial expressions, it's little hugs. That was great. Yeah, I'm 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 largely aligned. I'm actually gonna give it a two just for some confusion. Um, for instance, around the, the, the science, um, there were, there were, there was a lot going on there, but generally speaking, yeah, it was, it was pretty smooth ride. Yeah. I was also a two in part because I was completely hung up on is his brain influencing the monkey? Is the monkey influencing his brain? Is this telepathy? Why is the blood ritual involved? There, yeah, there were some questions there where I was like, I do not necessarily, in a distracted way, because they would add these little tidbits of information that it was like, oh, well, that explains it now. And I'm like, I am even more confused at this point as to what is happening between these two characters. Um, but this is by far, I would say, the best film we've watched for this podcast, uh, which is both hilarious and sad. I just want to give a quick shout out to Mac and me, which is like, somewhat of a contemporary because I think that that was our other like probably best I feel like there's you know something about the late 80s just had there was a vibe I mean is it any should we even think about the fact that like the rolling quads and the whole stuff in Berkeley was like 1970 so we're and then you like look at adapt this is right before like a couple years before ADA is passed like these films are actually perhaps coming out right during an American disability renaissance in some ways. So maybe it's unsurprising that these are better representations. Better, but not perfect. So no. our next criteria on the scale, one to five, with five being the max, how often did you laugh at things that weren't supposed to be funny? Uh, I had more, less of laughing at things that weren't supposed to be funny, finding things adorable that were not meant to be adorable. Um, <laughs> so 
but laughing at things that aren't funny, I didn't I didn't find I did that too much. I thought Romero has a good good eye for like intentional funny shocking. So I would give it a like a one or two. One point five is good. Yeah, I was in the exact same spot where like I found it was a little bit hard to decipher on this. Like I actually vocalized at one point during the film where we supposed to laugh at that because like I felt like sometimes we it was actually intended to be funny even though it was not like haha funny so i will join you in the 1.5 yeah i i'm gonna put it as a one uh i i think that i think romero was taking the piss throughout the entire film in some ways i mean i think he was trying to play this like serious but intended it it looks serious which is what makes it kind of funny uh i i think that was the vibe uh I think that we laughed predominantly at the things that were supposed to be funny, I think. All right. And our last criteria on a scale of one to five, with five being the most, how many steps back has this film put disabled people? I'm going to give it a low rating again. I actually thought, so I'm trying to approach this from the lens of someone who just didn't know anything about disability. Um, and I feel like there there wouldn't have been too much in the film that would have really affected that person, you know, Betty Sue, the the normie, um, that, you know, would have been so uh so convincing that because the, the the whole movie had an air of lightness to it. It was it was yeah, like Jeff said, taking the piss a little. Um, and so I actually don't, I'm going to give it a one. I'm going to have to go a tiny bit harder on it just for the whole stereotypical trope of, um, you know, man, man, man loses his madness and then regains his madness. Um, but really, like that was pretty much the worst of the crimes it committed. So... I'm going to give it a two. So I'm going to break the rules right now. And I'm actually going to give it two ratings. And rating number one, I'm going to give a two to the Romero cut, which we have not seen, which had hardcore sex and no cure at the end. Uh, But that is not the movie we received. And so I am going to give uh, the Orion cut uh, a solid three. uh, Because, uh, yeah, the man stuff the this like this return to normalcy and also the very obvious like marketing ploy uh was like a big yikes but i think that romero cut might have been a one or a two if we had ever got it so i'm assuming uh i'm assuming romero was listening to this podcast uh please please release a director's cut Uh, the people want to see it the, the cure at the end was so pointless like why um, I, I revised my score to a two based on that alone. Yeah, I honestly bumped me to a 2.5. I had forgotten about that when I gave it that rating. That That's a serious hit as well. The people have spoken with a score of 23.5. Monkey Shines is officially a regrets. I have a few. Almost an underappreciated piece of art. Yep, that feels about right to me. 
All right. Well, that is a wrap. Uh, thank you so much, Clara, for joining us today. This was, uh, it was, it was truly a pleasure to, to share this bizarre experience with someone else. Hopefully you are not leaving feeling overly traumatized. And thus concludes our first episode of season two of Invalid Culture. We hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, if you have a film you'd like us to cover, head over to our website, invalidculture.ca, submit. Or if you would like to be on the podcast as one of our guest victims, please also head over to the website, send us an email. We would love to have you on. Everyone is wrong, I just haven't told them yet.